Well, this evening we will be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Oh, since the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us. So if you've been listening to these sermons in 1 Peter, you probably noticed a major theme in the letter is Christian suffering. And that is a tough topic. It's a tough topic, um, I think, because we're very quick, and I think rightly, to recognize that there are many, many Christians who live in other parts of the world who suffer in ways that we just can't comprehend. That we may hear it, We may intellectually understand what it is, but we don't know what it is for someone to come in and just take our house, arrest us, to just, you know, just to come in and just, and and kill us or, or, you know, or mistreat us simply because we're Christians and that there are believers who know how to do that. And so, and so, and and from that perspective, suffering, it can be hard to talk about. Yet suffering is something that every one of us knows to some degree. Everybody suffers. It's not like there's only one person who suffers or one type of person or one group of people or one place or in one time. Everybody knows suffering to some degree or another. And so, this, and so there's this question that Peter has been laboring to answer since, uh, since we were in chapter 2. Which is, how can Christians live faithfully in a hostile world? That's what Peter's been asking. How do do we live here in this world, even though we're citizens of heaven? How do we live here uh, on the earth? How can we live for Jesus while uh, living under pagan authorities? If we're stuck in master-servant relationships as the servant. uh, If we are in households with, with, in marriages. That where not everybody's a believer. Um, how, do we, how do we deal with that? And in all of this, Peter has lifted up for us the example of Christ. Calling us to humble submission to authority and service that brings glory to God. And in the last section, we concluded um, with Peter's uh, summary of Christian virtues. And the quotation that he gives us from the Old Testament, from Psalm 34. And he reminds us that as Christians, we are called to turn away from evil and to do good, to pursue peace, to seek out peace. Or to put it in the language of our Savior, 
We are called to be peacemakers and to love our enemies, to pray for them, and to do good for them. And the question comes, okay, suppose I do all that and they still hate me. Well, Peter answers with this passage, this text that we just read. And we'll break and we can boil it into two major points, which is he tells us, in that case, walk wisely and honor Christ. Walk wisely and honor Christ. And so first we'll look at how to walk wisely in verses 13, 14, and then also we're going to bring in verse 17. And in verse 13, we find a bit of practical wisdom from Peter. He asks a very common sense question. Who is going to harm you if you are zealous to do good? Right? And, and while we may instantly come up with immediate examples of people who in their efforts to do, to do good were opposed or mistreated, this, we have to, this is a, a common sense wisdom saying. And so, uh, it's, and, but, uh, but even before we get into that, we need to think about what this text actually says. He says, if you are zealous to do good, literally the, uh, a more literal translation rather uh, of that is to say, who's going to harm you if you become a zealot for what is good or zealot for the good? To be a zealot is someone to be earnestly committed to something, to give your life over to it in very practical ways. And Peter is saying, generally speaking, a person who is dedicated to doing good, and especially a Christian who's dedicated to doing good to those around them, they're generally not going to be targeted for harm. I think it's a fairly understandable premise, right? Um, but then someone comes back and says, well, yeah, but didn't Jesus say that they would hate us um, anyway? And, and it, yes, he did. But that doesn't mean that they do it at all times and in all places. And it's still, even though Jesus said that, doesn't contradict what Peter is saying here. But we need to set those, those kinds of, those, set those objections aside for a moment. And just take in that Peter, uh, what Peter is saying here, because Peter expects Christians to be zealous for doing good for others. Paul says that when he was a Pharisee, he was zealous for the traditions of, of the elders. That's what he was zealous for. But in another letter, he says that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are, wait for it, zealous for good works. Not for the tradition of the elders. Not for new traditions that the church has made. But to... to Create for himself a people who are zealous for good works. It reminds me of that letter that I read a while back. A portion of it, I read, I read it from Pliny the, uh, the, Pliny the uh, Younger. And he was writing to the, the emperor. Because he was really confused about what to do with these Christians. Uh, because he says, well, they get together. And they worship some guy named Jesus as Christ and God. Which is weird. But then they just, they make vows about doing good things and not doing bad things and not breaking the law. You know, like, I'm not sure what to do here. They're weird, but they're not, it's weird, it's weird to punish these guys for getting together and taking vows to not break the law, right? And so, and just this idea is just common sense says people will probably not hurt you if you're doing good for others. But even if they are, even if they do turn on you, um, when you're doing good, 
Peter says you can take comfort in the promise of God. And this is where we get here in verse 14. Because Peter gives us a promise that is given to the people of God. That as, as Jesus promised to those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, he said they shall be satisfied. But and Peter says that if we suffer for what is right, if we suffer for the sake of God, for righteousness' sake, well then we will be blessed. Well, why? Well, it was Peter's master and Lord who, who said that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed because the kingdom of God belongs to them. Even if we are, uh, and even if we are on, account, uh, on account of our Lord passionately committed to doing good and we still suffer for it, we will be blessed, Peter says, because there's nothing anyone can do that will rob us of that blessed inheritance that Peter talked about that we have at the beginning of the letter on account of Christ. Right? We have that, we've been born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. And so we didn't do the good works to get the inheritance. Or else, or we didn't do the good works in order that people wouldn't mess with us. But because we have that inheritance, because we have are part of the we are citizens of the kingdom of God, because we have that guarantee in Christ and grace, we do the good works. And even if people revile us or turn it back on us and they and they give us evil in return for good, they don't rob us of anything. They don't take us because we weren't doing it for their praise to begin with. And so, um, and Peter, we, we need to be reminded, open this letter. With the, with the foundation of grace, that promise in the gospel, but he also worked in there the furnace of affliction that only served to steal and prove the faith of the believer that resulted in the salvation of their souls. And so we don't do good to men that we may get reward from them. We don't pray for our enemies and do good for them that we may win their favor. They don't have anything to offer us that we actually want or need. There's nothing that they have that they can give us that's better than what we have in Jesus. And so if on account of Jesus, I go and I serve my neighbor in kindness, and then my, and, and then my reward from my, uh, and my reward comes from Jesus, and his love, well then, then I, I know that I'm blessed no matter what my neighbor does. Whether he says thank you, whether he says you're great, uh, whether he says, hey, I'll come to church, uh, whether he says, um, you're an idiot, you work for free and you're a sucker and thanks, I appreciate it, but you're done. You know, like, it doesn't matter because our reward comes from above. And at the end of this passage in verse 17, Peter says, taking all this into account, he basically says, you need to keep a clear head about you. It's the way that I paraphrase that. You need to keep a, keep a clear head about you, about what's going on. Because, he says, because there, there is a kind of cynical way of thinking that says, well, if you're going to suffer for doing good, and you suffer if you do bad, well, who cares? Why spend all that effort to do good? Just, just... Do bad. Just do get what you can get. Look out for you. And if you're suffering, you can suffer anyway. So what does it matter? 
you know, if all the menu options are suffering, then who cares what you pick? Right? And he, and he says, and, and, and he's, and, but Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, no, it is actually better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says it's better. We, we assume we know what that means, but think about that. He says it's actually better. There's, you have suffering for doing good, suffer for doing evil, and he says this one is better. If you've got to pick between the two, this is the one you want to pick. It's actually better than this one. You know, and, and well, why? Well, you know, he, but he's saying it, it was better. You know, think about Old Testament history. You know, it was better for Joseph to suffer for his purity regarding Potiphar's wife than to give him temptation. It was better for David to suffer being chased through the woods by Saul and wait upon the Lord rather than to take the opportunity to strike down the mad king. It was better for our Savior Jesus to suffer unjustly for our sake than to take up a sword and defend himself. Why? Well, Peter says the qualitative difference here is the will of God. It's the will of God to bring about his glorious purpose for Joseph in saving a nation, for David in securing his kingship, and for Christ in securing our salvation. And so we, we need to be careful we don't get into this kind of cynical nihilism or a false equivalence that says all suffering is the same. It is better to suffer for doing good, for that is according to his will. That follows the example of Christ. And, and, and you know, when we talk about the will of God, may, you know, it certainly is in accordance with his secret will. But to suffer for doing good, it also means that you're suffering according to his will of command. What he told us to do, what Christ told us to do, what God has told us to do. It is better to suffer in obedience to God than in disobedience and wickedness. There is promise and reward for the Christian who follows in the way of the Savior. And so Peter says, first of all, when it comes to living in a hostile world, where the world hates you, you know, even if you're doing good, first, walk wisely, right? Seek to do good because this generally can put you out of harm's way, but even if you do suffer, you are blessed. You are blessed and don't give it into false ways of thinking about suffering because it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And secondly, Peter says, honor Christ above all. Honor Christ above all. And this is uh, taking up the, the second part of verse 14 all the way through verse 16. But he says in verse 15, that's where we're going to start, he says to honor Christ in your heart as holy. Now there's a passage in Isaiah that says, do not call conspiracies. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. It says, do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Uh, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Uh, Now it's, um, Peter seems to be taking that passage in Isaiah and rephrasing it. When he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So you have a lot of Isaiah in the background. There's at least some allusion or echo uh, in there. Peter seems to be adapting this text. It's telling us not to walk in fear, not to be troubled um, if we suffer for the sake of righteousness. We don't have to fear because we uh, we don't have to fear what the unbelieving world fears. We don't have to be troubled by the unbelieving world and the evil that is in it. The fears, the troubles, the conspiracies of the world don't rule over us. We are mastered by another who is far greater. And that one greater, according to Isaiah, is the Lord, the Lord of hosts, who Peter identifies here as Jesus, as Christ the Lord. And so we honor Jesus then, not as an important man or an important religious leader, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the one promised in the scriptures who came, died, and who has been raised for us. He is the Lord who rules over us. We rely upon him, we rest in him, we submit ourselves to him. He is our king our prince, our sovereign. As Christ, he has saved us from the threats of violence and persecution in his death and resurrection. He's why Christians don't need to fear persecution that comes even in the most extreme form. As Lord, he rules over us, even over our enemies who will either repent or be judged for their sins. So rather than being ruled by fears and threats from the powers and authorities of this world, as Christians, we are called to regard Christ as holy. He is the one that we are to set apart in our hearts, to regard as unique and worthy of our devotion and reverence. We do not fear the one who can only kill the body. We fear the one who, after killing the body, can cast the soul into hell. Further, we regard as holy the one who redeemed our lives from the pit of destruction and despair, who lifted us up with himself to heaven. And so this is actually the secret. This is the core principle to living faithfully as Christians in a hostile world. It is that we revere Jesus as Christ and Lord above all and from our deepest being. That is the secret to navigating these turbulent waters. And then Peter says, be prepared to give an answer for your hope. Now this uh, here, this uh, answer, uh, this uh, Greek word, where the famous word where we get apologetics from, the defense of the faith, the Greek word for defense. And he says, you know, get ready, be able to make a defense. And, and if we want to see what it looks like to make a defense of the faith, then a great place to go look is the book of Acts. And go look at Paul when he's going, he's standing on trial. He's making a defense. Or he's standing before the Mars Hill or the, the, the Aeropagus and, and presenting the faith to unbelievers. Or in other places where he's been dragged, dragged into a place. Or he's been put upon to explain himself. And... and And when you look at what Paul does in these situations, we should see that one thing that's interesting about Paul is that he does 
he looks out and he sees, and he, the first question he seems to ask is, who am I talking to? Who am I talking to? Because who he's talking to does affect what he says. Doesn't mean it affects the truth of what he says or, or that he changes the gospel. But if he's talking to, you know, a, a, you know, a Greek audience, uh, the Athenians uh, over on Mars Hill, he doesn't lead with quotes from Deuteronomy. Right? He, lead, he leads with, well, you know, I was walking in the city and I saw this, I saw, I saw this um, idol built to, uh, to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about it. You know, it's like he quotes from their own pagan poets. And then he does tie it in with the biblical worldview, even with the scriptures. Um, but when he's talking with Jews, he talks very differently because he is what we call contextualizing. He's saying, hey, he's looking at his audience and saying, I want to present the gospel in a way that is the most clear and the most effective for you. But he also, as he, but um, but he also does go to the scriptures. He argues from the Bible, from the, from the scriptures, and he also involves testimony. He also speaks about himself, because remember, Paul is giving a defense of his faith in Christ, why he was on trial, because he is a Christian. And the question is, what are we making a defense for? After all. We are not making a defense for some kind of theoretical hope. We're not making a defense of, you know, our favorite sports team uh, or, or something that we found on the Internet. We are giving a defense for the hope that is in us. And so at some point, it's got to involve, how does this affect me? How does this involve me? But what does it look like to be prepared to make that defense? Well, to be able to defend our hope means that we must have a clear understanding of what that hope is. We must have some definition of what the gospel is. Not that we have plumbed the depths of the divine mysteries, but that we are able to explain why we have a certain hope beyond the grave, why we are willing to do good for our enemies, why we willingly suffer for the sake of righteousness. And we ought to think it through uh, because the more that we can make sense of it, well, then the more certain we shall be of it. Now, notice he also says that you make this defense to anyone who asks you. Uh, now, I do believe in sharing the gospel uh, without having to be asked. Right? It's like you don't always have to wait for someone to ask. Um, we have plenty of examples of that in the book of Acts. Uh, and we don't have to, and we don't share the gospel with only particular people, right? But there's a subtle and I think very powerful point, and even a, a, in certain respects a painful one, that, it, that, that ought to get us thinking and doing some self-evaluation. And it begins with the question, is anyone asking us about our hope? And if not, Why? It could be that we live in a culture that is so close to Christianity, uh, culturally speaking, that, uh, that people would just kind of, they just don't think to ask. That's certainly part of it. It could be that they actually see that we are Christians and sincere Christians and genuine Christians, that we love Jesus, and they just don't care. That's another aspect of it. But what we have to be careful of, and what we need to examine ourselves, is that they don't look at our lives and maybe they look at our lives and they think, 
They're hoping in the same things that I am. And so we need to make sure that we actually have lives that distinctively communicate where our hope is. And so, and so, you know, and so Christians who go to church on Sunday, but then basically don't live like Christians the rest of the week, you know, it's like, can they, can someone tell a difference in our lives on a daily basis between us and an unbeliever? What is it that, what is it in our speech? What is it the way that we carry ourselves, that we interact, that we, that we do, that communicates our hope? It doesn't mean that we're just dropping the gospel every time that we go. But in, their, in, in how they interact with us, can they tell a difference between us and an unbeliever? So we basically need to watch out for worldliness in our lives that may cause people to not, uh, to not see that we have a hope that's different than theirs. And so whatever the case may be, it does behoove us to examine ourselves and to see if we are following after the example of Christ. If we are living according to uh, the hope that is in the gospel in every aspect of our lives. If we are sharing our lives with others that they may see the hope. Maybe we're just not giving access to people. Maybe we just don't have that access to others who are unbelievers. Who, um, and maybe we have more access than we realize. Right? Because um, I've talked to people who, who just say, look, I just don't know any non-Christians. You know, and I'm like, well, maybe in your immediate friendships. But, you know, you go to the store. Right? So it's like if you start looking around and seriously start praying, Lord, show me the unbelievers in my life and start looking for them. You'll find them. You'll find them. So um, it was it was interesting because um, a while back, Tommy and I went to a workshop, and um, and uh, and this guy he works with pastors, and and, um, and in order to help them with evangelism, he has them uh, look for people with tattoos. Not because people with tattoos are all unbelievers, mind you, <laughs> but but he says he says he says you have to learn to notice people. He said and this is just an easy kind of gimmicky way that I use to train pastors to start looking for people again <laughs> and to be actually start observing people and looking for them and getting curious about people. Like he said, you know, so, and so he would, you know, that's where he starts with, you know, that's why he tells them to, to go look for people's tattoos and to ask them questions about their tattoos just to get them started connecting with other people. But, but, but Peter goes on here and he says, you know, give that answer. Be prepared to give that answer. But when you give that answer, how you answer does matter. How you answer the question. And Peter, when he's saying people, when people ask you and you will give a defense, it's he's not describing a very friendly situation. He seems to be describing a pretty hostile situation um, where uh, asking should probably be more uh, understood as demanding an answer. <laughs> you explain yourself, you know, kind of. Uh, kind of uh, um, asking. And, and the temptation would be to respond with anger. The temptation would be to respond uh, with, um, uh, you know, fight fire with fire. To respond with what we're, you know, I'm just pushing back what I'm getting. But Peter says that our answer, our communication of our hope in the gospel must be done with gentleness and respect. He says that you may have a clear conscience. When you share the gospel. That we have not lied. That we have not sinned in our anger. But with humility. We have entrusted ourselves. To the one who judges justly. As we communicate our hope. 
to those around us. This is not unlike Paul, who when he was, you know, albeit gently rebuffed by Agrippa, who said, you know, Paul, do you think you will so quickly, you know, convert me to be a Christian? And, and Paul says, you know, I wish you would be as I am, except for these chains, right? And so, like, that's the kind of thing, that's, that's the level of engagement. He could have been raging about his chains. I'm unjustly imprisoned. And somebody's like, no, Agrippa, I would have you be as I am. Just not with these. Not with my bracelets. Right? And so, and note the effect of this faithful witness that Peter says. He says, give your answer with gentleness and respect so that when they're converted, you can go to church arm in arm. And No, he says, so when they revile you with your good behavior, you're like, wait, did the answer not work? No, it did. It did. Right? And so, and so I definitely agree with R.C. Sproul and others that the purpose of making an apologetic argument is not in order to convert someone. Like, that's not the goal, but rather it is simply to make a rational defense of the faith. That's it. The Spirit has to work to convert that person, right? The Lord may use that in the life of someone and send them into their own journey where they begin and they grow and all of a sudden they come to faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Um, but, it, but it reminds me of, I was thinking about Justin Martyr um, in the second century and he was writing to the government and he, and he certainly would love for the, the emperor and the high Roman officials to become Christians. Right? He would love that. He's writing this, writing this letter to them. And, uh, and, and he does present the gospel. He also argues why you know, the, the, the Roman religion and the gods, this is, none of it makes sense. And that Christianity is the only true faith and that the gospel is what they must believe. But at the end of the day, at the end of it all, he says, look, you should believe in Christ. But even if you don't, you should stop imprisoning torturing and executing Christians. Like at the very least, you should see that our faith is not just, it may be strange to you, but it is rational. And we can live as people in this society without being persecuted. Right? That was Justin Martyr's actual aim in his writing. Hope for conversion, but to make a rational defense of the faith. So how do we live in this hostile world as faithful Christians? Well, first, Peter told us to walk wisely, to, that, that people are not going to harm us if we're doing good, generally speaking. But even if that happens, we need to remember, we need to know, because of the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we are blessed. And also, don't get cynical. Not all suffering is the same. It is better to suffer for Christ in your, in your good behavior, doing good for His name, than it is for doing evil things. And secondly, you live in a hostile world as a faithful Christian by honoring Christ above all. Regard Jesus alone as Christ and Lord. Be prepared in your suffering to give a gentle and respectful answer for the hope that you have in Jesus. Perhaps they will listen. Perhaps they will believe. At the very least, if they don't, they will be put to shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that 
Your word does not shy away from the difficulties of living in a fallen world. And we recognize, Lord, the great privileges, comforts, and peace, relative peace that we live in in, in our own society as believers. We have our struggles. We have our problems, and they are real. But we also recognize it is a difference between that and those who are persecuted for the faith, where their lives uh, and their blood is being spilt. And so, Father, we do pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We pray for relief. We pray that the persecutors would turn and repent. We pray uh, that, um, at the very least, they would just stop the persecution. Lord, we, uh, we also, Father, but we also pray for our own people, our own nation, our country, our communities. Lord, that, uh, that you would do a great work of revival and renewal in the hearts of this people that is inexplicable except for the work of the Spirit, except for the movement of the Spirit. Father, we pray for a great revival within the church, not just adding the numbers of all the, from all the unbelievers outside, but a renewal from inside where true faith is proclaimed, where your grace is upheld and honored and treasured, where holiness is, is a concern of your people. And Father, we pray that we would walk wisely, that we would not be ruled by the passions and anger and fears of this world, but that we would be ruled by our Lord and Savior, that we would honor Him, regard Him as holy in our hearts, and that we would be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us to anyone who asks. And Lord, we pray that we would live such lives that they would ask, that we would do such good in the lives of those around us that they would ask, and that Christ would be honored, that you would be glorified. And we pray that you would help us to do this, Lord. For it is not natural to us. So, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit's grace, work in us to that end. That your people, your church, would be strengthened and helped. And that you would be glorified. That Christ would be honored. And that the gospel would spread. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.